Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. And of course, we should say a happy 2023. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy. It's been ages since we spoke. It's been so long since we spoke and since we shared the same audio space. We're very, very happy to have you back. Uh, I'm sure that listeners were thinking, what's going on? Where is she? They thought we'd had a terrible row, you and me, and I'd stopped <laughs> off. That's what they One thought. of us said right, something you do it. Yes, exactly. We had a, tr- a tremendous argument over a bit of metaphysical poetry, and I stopped off. Uh, no, I was on the high seas. Wonderful. I was on the Queen Mary too. So grand. Very grand. Very, very grand. It was just me. There was nobody else on it. Like, I <laughs> got the whole boat just to myself. And then I got back. And of course, you know, as many of our listeners, I'm sure, I got the bug and the bug rather laid me low for a while. And so, yes, it's been ages, but here I am in fine fettle and and raring to go. Well, we're very, very glad. How are you, Lucy? How are you doing? Fine, thank you. Fine, fine. Um, our listeners will know that because you were away, Alex, I dragged Charlotte, our producer, out from behind the fourth wall. That's all I need, another piranha in the tank. <laughs> Got her to tell us some wonderful stories. I bet she stories. was absolutely brilliant. She was and, brilliant, yeah, yeah, and she I'm was. Now, I'm so now, what's I'm, your I'm back? I'm clinging on, I know, I'm <laughs> clinging on. Well, I'm delighted that you that you weren't just, you know, having to do the whole thing on your own. I'm delighted to be back. Now tell us... What is going on in the paper this week? I know there's something very interesting. Well, the lead is interesting. It's an extract, an edited extract, actually, just just for the paper this week of a book, which is actually published by TLS Books. You can hear me. Would you like some atmospheric audio? This is me rustling the TLS. Yes. There you go. The book's called Lawfare, How Russians, the Rich and the Government Try to Prevent Free Speech and How to Stop Them. And it's by Jeffrey Robertson, Casey, not QC, Casey now. And the stand first of the piece is that Russian oligarchs are using British courts to close down investigative journalism. So he's done a whole book about that, which is out in, I think, two days. And this is an edited extract of it. So that's a bit of a must read, that one. There's also a brilliant piece about Arthur Miller and his life, his writing life, and it's part of a Jewish Live series, actually, and his life with Marilyn Monroe. 
and lots of other fascinating things that we are going to talk about in a bit, aren't we? We are. We certainly are. You wanted to highlight a couple of kind of remembrances, I think. I did because, you know, we're always obviously sad when when we lose writers and and two writers with extraordinary careers have died in recent times one of course is Faye Weldon who was just such a a sort of memorable and vivid presence in Mm. the literary scene in general and in women's writing and it was very noticeable how many writers wanted to share their memories of her when she died and nearly all of them talking about how encouraging she was and what a sort of warm and open space she made for writers starting out on their careers and for other writers when they were getting further along in their careers. And it it was very touching, I thought. She was a great sort of champion. Yeah, absolutely. And the other writer at the age of 100, Ronald Blythe, the author of Aikenfield, and one time great pal of Patricia Highsmith also died. And it was really, again, interesting to read remembrances of him and, and this incredibly sort of multifaceted life that he had he did so many Mm. different things aside from writing you know those those one thing that I I read that he'd had a until you know not that many years ago had a weekly diary in the church times which wasn't something Mm. I would particularly have expected to read he had a book a book came out last year I mean not long ago I mean I think two or three months ago of his and in fact I read the it's it's a kind of yearly diary I'm not sure if it's from the church times or not Mm. I read the um January entry the other day and it was wonderful it's such close observation but it's sort of very welcoming it kind of draws you in he describes beautifully what the winter's like and then goes oh it's great to be inside you know it doesn't make you feel bad for not tramping around the hedgerows (laughs) he's very big on his cats and he's very big on the life of the church as well but none of it again none of it shuts you out it all brings you in and it's that it's that amazing thing of of being very very local hyper local very, very detailed, but it, you feel that it could apply to anyone. It was wonderful, actually. I must look that out because, you know, cats and the great indoors are two of my, <laughs> my great passions in, in life. Um, now, observation, actually, is a real key to some of the things that we're talking about this week. Coming up on this week's show, Gabriel Roberts takes us back to a time when aurochs roamed the earth and oysters massed in Chesapeake Bay and ponders whether we could ever regain such levels of bioabundance. And novelist Gwendolyn Riley joins us to discuss the new book, in fact, the first novel for 21 years from Michael Bracewell. But first, we're going to talk about biodiversity and yes, inevitably, the loss of it. But we're also going to look at the idea of bioabundance, what it was and why we might need to turn to literature and such writers as Defoe, Keats and even Shakespeare to get an idea of it. Gabriel Roberts, who's an English teacher and also involved in environmental education with a background in English and intellectual history, has written a fascinating piece on the subject this week for us and he joins us today to talk through it. Gabriel, many thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you start your piece by telling us about your own fascination with birds and how that evolved and how your attitude towards sort of rare and common birds changed. Can you tell us about that, please? Yeah, I think my earliest memory actually is of a sparrow that was semi-tame and used to come into our kitchen when I was a kid. And I think from that early moment of of feeding this bird, I was fascinated with birds. And so when I was growing up, when other kids were probably off playing football and doing things like that, I was reading bird books and I had lots of them and I cross-referenced them with each other and I would then go out outdoors on holiday or around the town I grew up in and I'd look for birds 
and this was all well and good. But as I grew up and I became more aware of what I was watching, I came to realise actually some of the species I was observing were declining in numbers. So when I was young, there were sparrows in my back garden. And then when I was a teenager, there weren't. Or to give mm. another example, I was aware of the number of swifts declining in my local area, again, across the same kind of time span. And then gradually I became more and more aware of how these trends that I was spotting on a local scale actually fitted into longer trends that biologists and ecologists had measured over the past sort of 30, 40, 50 years. And then as I became more interested in history, I came to realise that actually some of these trends stretched right back hundreds, thousands of years into the past. And it dawned on me that a long time ago, many parts of the natural world were considerably more abundant than they are today. I was so interested in in something you pointed out that makes perfect sense once it's being pointed out to you, but you don't necessarily think of that when you become a sort of enthusiast and a, and a sort of spotter in this case, or a collector or something, you are drawn towards rarity. Aren't you think mm-hmm. the important thing is spotting the rare animal or the rare stamp or coin or whatever it is that's your thing. And it kind of might briefly sort of blind you to what's happening with these larger species Mm. things that are more common so if in other words if they're declining you may be slightly blinded from seeing that because you're always after this sort of rare thing it was just a terribly interesting way of looking at it yeah and it's it leads i think to a sort of very complex emotion the person who goes out to see the rare thing when they find it might experience a thrill or a sense of achievement in that you say to yourself i have tracked down this busted or whatever it is you know, very hard thing to find, but I found it, I must have exercised some skill in doing that. And then that sense of triumph is mingled with a sense of sadness or confusion. When you think, hold on, why is this thing so rare? Wouldn't it be nice if there were more of these things? And Mm. then when you realise that it's rare because, you know, the habitat that it lives on has been depleted or it's been persecuted by humans or whatever the reason is, that then contributes to an even greater sense of perplexity, really. It reminded me of, like you said, Alex, like like a collector. It's like being a collector. You want the rarities, except they're not stamps. They're living creatures. And I loved um, what you said about the, that your attitude shift. And then actually you started taking delight in the much more common things like starlings or sparrows, but also tracking how the birds, which used to be much more common, they too are decreasing in number pretty rapidly. Yeah, it's it's interesting thing. These days I find that I take pleasure in wildlife in a very different way to how I did when I was younger. When I was a child, I wanted to track down the rarities, whereas these days I pretty much take pleasure in anything, whether it's sort of, you know, pigeons flying around in an urban setting or relatively common birds like sparrows. I still take a great delight in that, which I think I wouldn't have done when I was younger. I think I would have been much more dismissive. And yet, as you say, some things that until quite recently were really pretty common and abundant are now doing quite badly. So swifts, which I mentioned earlier, are a really good example of that. For lots of people, they think of them as a very common bird, but actually the overall population trend is very much downwards. And there are all kinds of efforts to try and provide nest sites for them and arrest that decline. Sometimes we don't realise, I mean, the numbers are sometimes just so astonishing to someone like me, who is not in any sense an expert or even knowledgeable at all. When you talk about right whales mm-hmm. and how they were once terribly common uh, and this is sort of the other part of the piece is is how these things have sort of been tracked throughout history and all the kind of different aspects of that but terribly terribly common in as you point out in Cape Cod for mm-hmm. example mm-hmm. in the 1600s 
And now the population of right whales is less than 400. And you suddenly think less than 400 mm-hmm. sounds vanishingly few to me. Well, yeah, they're pretty much on the brink of extinction. I mean, there are yeah. enormous efforts to try and protect them and make sure they're not hit by ships and adversely affected by humans in other ways. But you find similar things across lots of other species of animal. Tigers, for example, used to range across the whole of Asia, pretty much, right even into Europe. So like when Hamlet, for example, refers to the Hyrcanian beast in play Hamlet, he's referring to tigers and he's referring to a place called Hyrcania, which was on the shore of the Caspian Sea. But the Caspian Sea is now miles away from any wild tiger population. And so there you have sort of extent being limited as well as absolute numbers. Just linking back as well, the right whale example is really interesting because, of course, they're enormous animals. And so if you had a great abundance of right whales, you would also have to have an enormous abundance of all the things that they live on. So that would suggest you not only had abundance at the top end of the food chain, but you also had abundance at various levels going down the food chain, right down to plankton and things at the bottom. Mm. In the beginning of the piece, you go back to some of our earliest accounts of life, cave paintings and things, which speak of massive abundance of of mm-hmm. all animals mm-hmm. ac- across the globe, don't you? And 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 just the fact that everything just seems to be kind of teeming and bursting with life, and then moving up into times that we may recognise a bit more. Mm-hmm. This is where you're saying that we turn to literature, we turn to what we think of as literary writers for evidence, which is completely sort of fascinating. And I hadn't thought about that before. So why are we turning to Defoe and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Shakespeare and these people? Why do we need to turn to them for our evidence? This is a really complex issue. There's quite a lot to say about it. It is worth saying that there are people who have come at this issue of declining wildlife populations from a different angle, from the perspective of biology and zoology and ecology and those kinds of subjects. And there are increasingly studies of what some people call defaunation, that is the uh, removal of fauna from the world. And there are studies of biomass and its changing distribution and scale over time. And they draw on a variety of kinds of evidence and they try to construct more systematic studies of this than the one I put together. What I'm doing is approaching the same topic from another direction. I'm deliberately using an assortment of historical and literary and artistic examples, which are not meant to be systematic. What they're meant to do instead is to be evocative and to make people think of examples from their own experiences and from their own reading. And if you like, contribute those examples to the pool of information on this. And also I want people to think seriously about how they feel about this and just being represented with data of, say, distribution of biomass over the last sort of 100,000 years isn't necessarily going to engage people's emotions and their imaginations. Whereas I think using some of the examples that I use, although they are rather sort of happenstance-ish in their character, does have the capacity to engage people's emotions and imaginations. Another reason, though, for going to some of the kind of sources that I go to is that actually there is not a lot of evidence in this area. If you read the scientific papers on deformation or on biomass distribution, one of the things they, they stress again and again is that actually there isn't a huge amount to go on. Systematic surveying of wildlife populations in many cases only began in the 1970s. And although there are some sort of data sets that run back a bit earlier than that, shooting records, some fishing records, records of um, pelts taken by the Hudson Bay Company. They all go back sort of into the 19th century. And also, you might notice in the the piece I talk about uh, vermin control records from early modern England, which provide some quite useful long-term data from early periods. But those kinds of sources are the exception. 
on the whole, you don't have very much to go on. And so you have to sort of gather together what's available and make your best estimates on the basis of that. You're sort of brought face to face with all the different things that are going on when sort of books are being written and made and compiled. And so obviously mm. when you've got, you know, Defoe saying, you know, he'd seen a million swallows, we know mm-hmm. it's not literally a million. But when you you also mention medieval bestiaries and you think, well, you argue that they actually did indicate, you know, people recorded things that they had seen. They they mm-hmm. gave they give a sort of mm-hmm. idea of what might have been abundant, what might have been in the normal view. But obviously they're also kind of quite sort of myth-making volumes in some ways. And it's so hard to know. Yeah, I mean, all of these things require careful interpretation. In many cases, there are going to be arguments in favour of it being a more accurate literal description and arguments in favour of it being something more mythical. On Topic say bestiaries, that's a complicated one because clearly some of the animals that they contain, like unicorns and manticores and things, are entirely invented. And you wouldn't take those documents as evidence that such things actually existed in the Middle Ages. But they do also contain real animals. And then you think, well, how do the people involved come into contact with those animals? Must have been because they were actually out there in the environment. Mm. Therefore, people were encountering them. Where were they encountering them? What were the populations of them like? Were the populations of them high enough that the people writing the documents? could bet on the people reading them having some familiarity with these things and so on and so on you can get into a discussion about that with the Defoe example it's a really interesting one he says a million swallows I don't know whether to take him at his word on that I think I mentioned in the piece that 30,000 swallows or thereabouts congregated in Anglesey a few years ago and footage of that was caught on TV given that insect populations were probably substantially higher in the 18th century when Defoe was writing I don't think it's totally impossible that the number of starlings that he found was about a million, although he wasn't obviously in a position to count them in a systematic or scientific way. And one of the things I suppose I'm encouraging people to consider in writing the article is that when they encounter reports of large numbers of wild animals in historical or literary documents, they shouldn't necessarily dismiss them as sort of imaginative embellishment. So I was recently looking at Aurora Lee which is a verse novel by Elizabeth Barrett Browning written in the middle of the 19th century. And there's a bit there where she refers to multitudes of nightingales. Now, nightingales are a pretty rare bird. So if I'd read that a year or two ago before doing some of the reading that went to this article, I would have thought to myself, multitudes of nightingales, seriously? And now I think to myself, actually, maybe she's including that because she really has in, you know, encountered nightingales in considerable numbers. Mm. And actually, that's backed up by some more systematic surveying. So the British Trust for Ornithology, for example, estimates that nightingale populations in about 1800 were 15 times higher than they were today. Wow. And it at least gives you an idea of the relative commonness of something, doesn't it? Things in relation to one another, too, I suppose. Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. And of course, things like predator and prey species, you'd expect their populations to have some kind of correlation. But you wouldn't think, say, of a bit of longitudinal data about nightingales produced by the British Trust for Ornithology as actually being a useful document for interpreting a verse novel written by <laughs> a mid-19th century writer. But I actually think you might be able to illuminate something by putting sources like those together. It's also, it's another way into understanding, it seemed to me, isn't it, of the landscape of the past and also, as mm. you say, the literature that came from it. Because talking about nightingales, I was struck by the line you say in your piece, when Keats wrote about a nightingale singing in North London, he wasn't writing about a rare or extraordinary event. Now we'd go, oh, it's a nightingale, partly because of the myth around it, but also partly because we're quite unlikely to have heard a nightingale. Mm. But whereas actually if he's saying, oh, yes, you know, there was a nightingale singing and that's like us saying, 
well, there was a pigeon on the, mm-hmm, on the mm-hmm. phone line. It requires a shift in imagination in all sorts of ways. Yeah, this is one of the things I comment on in the article. I feel the declines in wildlife populations are not something that people who are learning history are standardly taught about. The people who are learning about history often encounter ideas about what has changed over long periods of time. So, you know, human population has increased. Humans have expanded around the globe. Technology has increased. Literacy Mm. rates have increased. Human lifespans have increased. People are familiar with a lot of these long-term trends. But actually the idea that the natural world that our ancestors encountered was radically different from the one we encounter, I don't think has yet entered that sort of standard repertoire of long-term trends that someone turning their attention toward history should probably be aware of. The only example I can think of is when, if you're learning about America and the the Native Americans, Mm -hmm. one of the many ways in which they slaughtered the Native Americans was by getting rid of the bison. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think Amitav Ghosh's book, The Nutmeg's Curse, deals with that and some other instances of deliberate habitat degradation as a sort of method of colonial control. But that's one particularly brutal example. I was also struck, there's a very poignant statement by Edmund Goss that you quote when he's talking about the 1850s. Can you can you tell us about that? Because that rang very true, and that's from nearly 200 years ago. Yeah, so Edmund Goss was a man of letters who was mostly famous in the later part of the 19th century and early 20th century, but he wrote a very compelling memoir called Father and Son about growing up with his father, who was a naturalist in the middle of the 19th century. And his father sort of disagreed with the Darwinian view of evolution and went to various lengths to try to confute it. But because of Goss's father being um, a naturalist, Goss was taken on all kinds of rambles around the coasts of Britain studying rock pools, particularly in the West Country. Uh, and he, he writes about the coast of Devon and Cornwall being so denuded by later visitors that no one will see the shore of England again in the way that I did in my early childhood. And he describes it as a ring of beauty thronged with beautiful, sensitive forms of life. And so he was presumably there comparing what he'd encountered in his childhood with what he'd encountered in later life and marking a huge change, which is important because if you were to read something like you know, modern reports on the state of the natural world, a lot of them take as their baseline a date in the 1970s. And that might lead you to think that in 1970, everything is sort of in a pristine or default state. But someone like Goss points you to the conclusion that actually in 1970, things are already considerably depleted. This is the real hammer blow, I suppose, that comes through so much of your piece is this has all been going on for much, much, much longer than you might wish to believe. Mm, yeah, I think there's a whole question here about the, the ontology of the, the climate and the environment crisis. The more I've worked on this as a topic, the more I think people have real difficulty conceiving of it. And I think one conception of it that you often encounter is of a disaster which may happen in the future, but which we can avert through canny behaviour now. Like it's a sort of asteroid approaching the Earth, but if we're really clever, we can knock it off course and it will miss us. But actually, at least as far as the ecology is concerned, things probably aren't like that. Probably there has been extinction and the diminution of wildlife populations going on for a very, very long time, hundreds, thousands of years into the past. So that would then mean that the crisis is not something in the future that you can avert 
through skillful behaviour. It's something we're living in. And most of the people you've read books by were living in. And then you need to start thinking about much longer kind of timescales. And you reconceive the whole kind of crisis. It looks very, very different, I think, once you, you start taking that kind of viewpoint. Mm. It's not that we want to go, oh, well, it's been going on for ages, so, you know, not much we can do about it. I suppose it's also about the relative speed and what's, what we've got left, which compared to what there was from your survey, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is an absolutely minute fraction of what there was. Yeah, it, it's important to emphasise that these changes are accelerating. Although, as I've said, there's lots of uncertainty in this field, I think there is quite a strong consensus that in the last few decades, a lot of these changes have been speeding up. I mean, as with um, global warming, you know, there have been significant human-produced greenhouse gas emissions since the Industrial Revolution onwards and, you know, earlier in some cases as well. But obviously, they've increased enormously in recent history. I think the, the data on wildlife populations depict something similar. You say at one point when you're talking about the kind of rethinking, I mean, it's a rethinking, I suppose you were saying it earlier, of how people learn about history isn't it because there's a phrase you've got what might in one account be progress might in another be a massive and unsustainable transfer of benefits from non-human living beings to human ones yeah i'm responding really there to the american writer stephen pinker he argues in his book better angels by nature that really particularly since the 18th century life has been improving for loads of people and he produces loads and loads of evidence indicating that violence has decreased and you know lifespans have gone up and healthcare has improved and democracy has spread around the world and, and so on and so on and when reading that I found myself thinking well okay I can go along with this to a certain extent but there's very little here about how this affects the natural world and if you think that non-human living beings have some sort of value in themselves or have some rights or some interests that you need to take account of, suddenly this human progress looks very, very different. It looks more like something has been taken away from the natural sphere, if you like, and shunted across into the human one, rather than something, you know, human well-being simply growing at the cost of nothing else. Yeah, that's what we're doing this weekend. We're thinking and we're regaining our sense of wonder. It will, it will take us much more than a weekend. Thank you so much, Gabriel Roberts, for, for joining us and talking to us. That was so interesting. Thank you ever so much. Brilliant. Thank you. Still to come on the show... Gwendolyn Riley joins us to delve into the world of Michael Bracewell, the acclaimed chronicler of British culture, whose novel Unfinished Business is his first for 21 years. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back, I'm Alex Clark. It's been 21 years since the publication of Michael Bracewell's last novel, Perfect Tense, although this fastidious and sharp-eyed chronicler of British culture has hardly been idle. The last few years, for example, have given us books such as Remake, Remodel, and Exploration of Roxy Music, works on artists Gilbert and George and Richard Hamilton, and Souvenir, an elegy to London in the 1980s. But now Bracewell has returned to fiction and to a previous character. Unfinished Business reintroduces us to Martin Knight, first encountered in the Conclave, but now very much older. The novelist Gwendolyn Riley has reviewed the book in this week's paper and joins us now. Welcome, Gwendolyn. My pleasure. He is clearly somebody whose work you are very connected to. I mean, it seems from your review that you have read him for a long time and, and and very sort of deeply is that is that fair why not yes I think it is fair I was thinking the other day that I was well into my teens before I realized there was such a thing as um, a contemporary English novelist I think you know I was reading my classics and I thought novelists were Victorians or Russians or at a push from the 1920s and then at some point I began to realize there were writers writing today and um yeah, at some point I came across Michael Bracewell's first novel, The Crypto Amnesia Club, which I think was published in 1988. So maybe I found it in a charity shop or something and was struck by the cover, the title. I have to say by the author photo as well. Good looking guy. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> so that's another good reason to buy a book. <laughs> yeah. And um, so stylish. And it's, I mean, the phrases and the brooding quality of that book really struck me. And I think there's bits of it I could probably still say off by heart. Yeah, so that, that's where I came across him first. And then, yeah, we'd sort of pick those books up. Fiction was that first way into his work for you. Oh, goodness, absolutely. I, you know, I don't know if I've, I haven't read the Roxy Music biography. Sorry, Michael. Um, I haven't read the books about art because that's not my world. I mean, I, I like art, but I, I, don't, I don't really read about it. And I know he does a catalogue copy and things like that and essays on artists, but I haven't, I haven't looked at them at all. So for me, the last time I, I read him was, um, yeah, 2001 when Perfect Tense came out, which, yeah, I remember really loving. That's a book about, not dissimilar when you read the first few pages of Unfinished Business, this new book's not dissimilar from Perfect Tense, which was about this man who works in an, in an office in the city in London and sort of one day just doesn't go in and has this um, strange odyssey around London. And very eerie, very affecting, and um, 
yeah really good book it's the style I mean not sorry that's such a, a sort of obvious thing mm-hmm. to say but I mean unfinished business when it opens here we are meeting Martin Knight again he's very much older as I said he's 57 and we kind of know immediately that he's in kind of trouble he's divorced he's in poor health I mean his everything's kind of hurting in those first few pages he has given up smoking even though there's a kind of rather wonderful sort of well a kind of elegy to cigarettes and what they have meant to him he has given it up but he's still drinking a fair bit oh yes he's not the matinee idol that the sort of two pages of the prologue of the novel give us via a photograph don't they there's a kind of framing to this book Mm, yeah the prologue is very interesting and um it's very touching actually it's sort of it's him sitting for a portrait almost so it's a, a memory of him when I think he's 17 sitting on a garden chair while his girlfriend is very much in love with him takes a picture of him and they describe the resulting photograph of this handsome young man the word that I lit on in my review was almost because the photograph his look is described as almost fierce and as you read the book you realize quite how much that almost admits because there's still that nervousness there and that sense of not quite or that sense of taint and worry maybe even so as the book unfolds it's written in the third person but very closely from his point of view at at certain points and it's him looking back and thinking where did it all go wrong or where did he veer off a right path or a path that would have led him somewhere else I suppose and there is this sense of taint or even degeneracy and he he traces it back at a certain point I mean there's different things he, he lights upon but he traces it back at a certain point to his first cigarette which to the young Martin indicated a rebel attitude and cool and glamour, but that has left him, you know, in pain as he tries to climb up to the station and, you know, gasping for breath at certain points. It sounds as though in some ways it's about promise and where the promise goes or promises that are unfulfilled or kind of spoiled somehow. Is that does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. It's um you get the sense that at a certain point Martin was when he was a teenager, he was beguiled by a certain idea of life and it's never quite let him go I mean we all were at that certain age Mm. beguiled by a certain idea of life and you know you stick with it or you don't and it seems like with him he's beginning to feel menaced by the fact that he stuck with it and thinking where on earth has this led me and that's I think the the title is so interesting such a great title and it's quite sly in a way because it could almost imply a threat I suppose it's whether he has unfinished business with life or whether life has unfinished business with him and it's sort of both as the book unfolds you realize that there are still still dreadful things to come I mean he really suffers he really suffers physically and then there's certain events that happen with his daughter and um, yeah it's bad but he's very brave he's very dogged again unfinished business and he's quite diligent and it's just really interesting I had some very eerie moments this book I found it exactly that and that sort of mapping onto the city mm which is is kind of, I mean, it, it announces itself, you know, pretty sort of obviously it's not, you know, that's not my brilliant textual uh, analysis because as it opens, you know, we're in Cambridge Heath Road near Bethnal Green, Dalston, Hackney, this kind of just, just to the east end mm-hmm. of the centre of London. And then very quickly he starts to mention, you know, Piccadilly and South Kensington and these sort of memories of going to these kind of beautiful arcades and squares and and, and rich people's houses. And it seems that there is this, you know, and for people, you know, not familiar with the places I first mentioned, Bethnal Green, etc. I mean, they have, they certainly have a kind of 
a chicness and a sort of creativity to them and a huge kind of interest, but they're not, they're not what you call posh, are they? And he's sort of, he seems to have almost kind of found himself slightly sort of washed up in this bit of London. Yeah, definitely. A bit where he says old streets and new buildings. And it's a fantastic London novel. And there are strange corners and tube stations and bits of it that they'll have, they have indelible scenes on them, which whenever I'm in those places now, you know, bits of by Olympia in Kensington, they where I, we live. And um, Holland Park tube station, there's a very moving scene just on the platform on one of those benches. They'll stick with me now. There's a Malcolm Lowry poem that begins, trapped in the Liverpool of self, I haunt the guttered arcades of the past. In a way, Martin Knight is haunting the guttered arcades of the past, but in London. I also thought it was a brilliant novel of sort of London weather. I was thinking my previous favourite on that score was The Years by Virginia Woolf. She can capture, you know, is exactly what an early October afternoon in Hyde Park is like. Somehow she gets it. And it's very similar with this. You think, yeah, if we're talking about a February evening in the beginning of February that I mean there's a lot of there's a lot of white skies and um, wintry skies in this book a lot because a lot of the vantage points where Martin Knight is looking out at the city they're a little bit elevated like Cambridge Heath Station or you know various buildings he's in looking out from the window of his own flat there's a sense that he's sort of psychically stranded and sort of physically a little bit elevated and above things and sort of looking out too so yeah it sounds a bit like um I mean, not quite, but almost kind of Ian Sinclair psychogeography. That dread word. <laughs> I'm sorry I said it. I'm sorry. No, no. Uh, it's in my notes, Lucy. You've oh, taken is it? the fall for me there. I'd written it down myself. And it is a dread word, but Ian Sinclair, he does come to mind, doesn't he? Well, because just it just sounds so specific and so kind of, uh, I don't know what the word is. You, you're describing it much better than I can, but the sort of haunting of particular places and the giving of meaning and, and that's with the conjuring it up with the weather and everything. Yeah, I think in, in another world, maybe Martin Knight would have had a psychogeography blog, but no, not in the world of this book. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting, actually, how technology features or doesn't feature in this book, because he's very into his music, Martin, and there are certain songs that come back to him and little bits of lyrics the thing you don't have is him going around with his headphones in at all. And I thought that really fitted with the idea of him sort of remembering his past on this strange quest to find out where things went wrong. He's not into distraction. If he were really a nostalgist, he could be listening to The Damned or whoever it might be while he's walking around. And I don't feel like he is quite. He's after a different kind of meaning. And I thought that was quite, it's almost like the, the fact that he's isolated is because he isn't distracting himself. He isn't in that kind of technological, you know, rabbit hole that one could get into. Well, he sort of rules himself out of lots of things to do with modern life, mm. I think, doesn't mm -hmm. he, in a way. I'd also say he is clearly the sort of central character, this kind of close third person narration. But, I mean, there are other characters, not least his ex-wife, Marilyn, mm. who I found very moving also because she's kind of trying to sort of keep her life on the rails isn't she she's trying to keep sort of forging ahead in a way that he isn't exactly yeah mm -hmm. it's largely about him but I mean a he's not solipsistic so we get a lot of his observation of people and I read a review not mine which described it as like um a street photographer the way he captures people he sees around London I, I think I've thought of it more as a crowded sketchbook page there's just lots of little pen portraits of people he sees and then there are these other characters that we, we hear the, their stories sort of in parallel to his and one of them is his ex-wife Marilyn who is the daughter of I think maybe a sort of 
royal court free cinema type person, a sort of Primrose Hill Marxist, <laughs> very rich, very boho. And there's a brilliant phrase where they're described as determined to talk. They're quite pompous. And, <laughs> so there are those stories as well. And yeah, so while, while Martin is suffering, Marilyn is embarking on an affair with, you know, I mean, there's the rich in this book and then there's the super rich and she's having an affair or beginning a, a love affair with with someone who is super rich. So we get all that side of London as well, which is something I know nothing about, alas, but, you know, the, these very beautiful restaurants they're sort of stepping into silently because the carpets are so thick and uh, the marvellous engagement party that they have. So, again, there's so much in here. It's, it's such a short book as well. It's not 200 pages, mm. but it crams in. A hell of a lot. A hell of a lot. There's a phrase that you used. I mean, it's. I think you're describing that kind of framing narrator, but that sort of attitude of the novel is almost a talk with slides <laughs> at a historical society, <laughs> which really made, was, again, such a specific way of describing it. It immediately chimed with me. It was very, there is a little bit of let us show you what life is like, as well as this sort of very affecting kind of personal sort of interior story. God, absolutely. Yeah, it's not solipsistic, even though this is this brooding man who, you know, when we see him speak to other characters in the book, his, his sentences are, you know, extremely stark and there's not much to them. Maybe, I mean, that image came to me of the talk and maybe that was because I was Googling Michael Bracewell and there's lots of YouTube videos of him doing that with, you know, um, artists that he's talking about. So you do see him pressing the button on the slide projection going and here is Brian Ferry in 1984, whatever it might be. So maybe I had that image in my mind, but it did seem, especially for the prologue, I thought, yeah, that's it. It's let's examine the, let's examine these people. Is he a sort of specialist of the? It's the eighties and nineties. Is it? That's what he's written his criticism about. Is that right? I mean, not only that, but kind of not only that. Yeah, there was a book called The Nineties When Surface Was Depth, which I haven't read. And then there was this, and then there was Souvenir, this really interesting book that came out a couple of years ago. I'm wondering how hard. I mean, if he was writing this contemporaneously is that the word with or concurrently with unfinished mm. business I wonder how hard it was to disaggregate at points because they do this sort of golden period in Martin's life definitely coincides with what this strange elegy for that period souvenir was looking at so the London of the late 70s and early 80s especially that prologue that could be Martin sitting for one of the little portraits that make up souvenir which sort of goes from character to character in in this remembered London but I suppose mm. it's quite quite different ways of looking at the past or what the past is is for the souvenir felt more like an act of um you know restoration or retrieval and this one is there's a bit more of a urgency to his looking at the past or share, it's a bit more emotional I suppose personal um but I, yeah I wonder how, how it was to write them both together mm. I mean I don't know anything about him sort of biographically I mean personally speaking and I don't I'm, I'm not suggesting you know in, in any way that this is or isn't a sort of autobiographical novel I don't know mm -hmm. how closely it mirrors but there does seem to be a kind of interest in these particular figures mm. whose lives have been kind of shaped by their interest in aesthetics and observation and the sort of question of whether actually that leads you down a path that sort of alienates you I suppose a word actually you use in the and remark upon using in the review but how it sort of takes you away from really being properly sort of engaged with your own life and you know there is our aesthetics are kind of dead end sometimes I suppose absolutely I suppose it's surface and depth sort of question isn't it yeah no it comes up again and again and it's very foxing and very 
there was a line in the book that struck me and I, did, I didn't even know what to think of it. And it kind of gave me the shivers and intrigued me at the same time where Martin says, perhaps the pursuit of the interesting makes you invisible. And I thought, ooh, Whoa. what do I think of that? Because <laughs> yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> I know. Should we be pursuing the boring? I mean, maybe. Well, I know, and because my whole thing is I absolutely adore people who pursue the interesting and who are interested in things other than themselves. But in this case, you feel like there's been some kind of weird card trick or some sleight of hand that has left Martin, you know, not quite knowing where he is or who he is. Or, I mean, the end of the book is so interesting that, and the last lines are very moving and you feel like it's not quite clear whether the whole thing has been worth it because he's found the thing that I won't mention, or if it's been a terrible wasting exercise. Anyway, makes you think. <laughs> it makes you think. <laughs> we should also say, I'm going to say, that it's also very funny. I mean, it's very funny on a sort of observational and sentence level sometimes. And there's a bit of characters described as archaically busty. Yes. <laughs> I thought it was such a brilliant. And Marilyn is wearing a coat and she's wondered if she's sort of, she's dressed up to go on a date and she's wondering if she's, gone too far with it and she thinks she just looks berserk <laughs> and it's, it's a brilliant description of this coat which is sort of made in gay bachelor soft tweeds that I <laughs> just sort of opened up and like you kind of knew what that meant entirely and uh, he sees people getting off a train and he thinks everyone looks like they live in Berlin and you think oh god that just yep. Yep. you know captures exactly <laughs> a certain sort of uh, person in London you make a, a parallel at some point between that character and a character from Anthony Powell, which was, again, in, in your review, I thought, God, that's interesting. I wouldn't have put exactly these two writers together, but I sort of see it once you've said it. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Paul. And uh, well, I think that was partly the alcoholism because you, you learn at a certain point that Martin isn't just drinking a lot. He's drinking a lot and he's drinking every day. And he's, you know, this is part of his disconnection in a way. This search for the elevated has led him to you know, need need his mood elevated in this way. And there's the, the drunken in Anthony Pole is um, Paul Stringham, who at a certain point stops drinking and says, I just need to get things clear in my mind, something similar. That's his whole project now. And there was something about the doggedness and diligence of Martin Knight's, you know, trying to go through his past. It just felt the same sort of, you know, slight drunk or ex-drunk concentration. I thought it instantly came to me. But again, I think with these, I mean, I suppose I'm also thinking now of the sort of Mark Boxer cartoons that are on the front of the pulp pole novels or a certain edition mm. of them. There's something of that in the descriptions. I'm thinking now there's a bit where he remembers being at university, Martin. He was at university in Liverpool and he does this sort of scan around the coffee bar. Um, I guess this would be late 70s, I think. It's just a lot of brown wool and pasty skin and zits and it's quite a good sort of sketchbook page of Liverpool 80s students, I guess. Very funny. There is a point where you say, again, in the review, you say that the risk here is that the reader is just not going to care what's happening to this man and that it will, you know, as, as you make the point, he's not solipsistic, but the story may appear to be so. Mm -hmm. But I think the kind of the fact that it is so funny in these little sort of acid drops of humour kind of gets it out of that. That's sort of how I responded to it anyway. Oh, God, yeah, that was me being probably needlessly defensive for someone saying, oh, who wants to read about <laughs> Oh, no, it's bloke? always good to get the defence in before someone says it, I find. <laughs> it's so funny. I also look at sort of these weird sort of Billy Liar-esque fantasies that Martin sort of goes on. There's bits where he's suddenly looking at the work meeting he's in and seeing them all in a post-apocalyptic city. And a bit where he's, I felt know, like that in meetings sometimes, I have to say. Well, yeah. no, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. It's not unreasonable. <laughs> 
<laughs> There's a thing you reminded me of, Alex mentioning, saying that everyone that got off the train looked as though they were in Berlin. Because you say also that because he's, you said he spends his time standing sort of maybe slightly higher, slightly elevated or looking out of, of windows and he's got his dark, his long overcoat on. And it reminded you of the angels standing around in in Wings of Desire, which is such a strong image and also such an, again, such a loved 80s. It is 80s, isn't it, Wings of Desire? I think so, yeah. So either that or, you know, a Simple Minds video. <laughs> <laughs> the overcoat looms large, that's for sure. Yeah, and he's, he's standing at these elevated positions alone, looking out and, you know, unable to communicate as well or unable to quite, you know... Join in. Join in, yeah. So that did seem very like that film. That was really interesting. You make that connection. I mean, just sort of conversationally, I suppose. But the music video, which, of course, you know, mm -hmm. here was its sort of moment of supremacy in the 80s and 90s. And evidently, Absolutely. he's so incredibly interested in mm -hmm. surface depth, pop culture. But there seemed to me this sort of idea somehow that, that the high culture has almost been hijacked, I suppose, by things like the music video. So you might stand looking like a, a matinee idol mm. and you might want to be thought of as a very deep thinking intellectual but actually you look like you're in a simple mind oh, <laughs> what's a thought for us all <laughs> I tell you I read this but I mean this it's all very well for you too but for those of us reading who are not very much younger than Martin Nice it was even more frightening a novel to read I tell you that I mean we all hurt going upstairs these days decay all around us we see it Gwendolyn, if I can, mm -hmm. I want to ask you a little bit, just a little bit, because we are, I know we're talking about Michael Bracewell, and that is the pretense on, under which I've got you onto this podcast. But you, there is this phrase that you use about his characters, mm -hmm. Bracewell's characters, that they have some, this is a phrase, some maddening idea of a higher life. And that immediately made me think of the connection to your own novels. That is sometimes what your protagonist, and I'm thinking about the narrator of My Phantoms, your most recent mm. novel, a novel that you know because I've embarrassingly told you I think is a, a masterpiece. I keep talking. Um, <laughs> I, I just the most. Tell me again. I read it with an, my jaw kind of hitting the floor at how just that great it was. That's it. I'm not. Listeners, that's it. I'm stopping. That's the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll take. Ask the question, terrible, Alex. Terrible gush I'll do. Ask the question, <laughs> Alex. But that is sometimes how your protagonists feel, isn't it? That that sort of, you know, there is this idea of somewhere they want to get to that they don't quite know how or even what it is when they get there. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. The mother character in my phantoms was constantly just rattling the handle on life, thinking I need to get into life, something. I'm mm. not quite clear what or if she's got an idea, just that it's not where she currently is. Yeah, and I suppose that sort of broody romance was there from my first book. And I wonder if that wasn't a lot of that wasn't from Crypto Amnesia Club, you know, walking at night in the club and everything. But certainly, yeah, the idea of wanting that that higher life or that different life, um I don't know. It's the the, the Leonard Best in all of us as well, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Us, not them. Yeah. Just before we get crushed. Oh dear. Um, I'm going to ring the bell again for how funny a book this is and how I found it incredibly sort of invigorating. And yes, as you point out, short mm -hmm. and, and something that one can read in an afternoon almost. But I found it, despite the fact that it is about encroaching age and the fear of sort of waste and, and the inability to sort of go back and put things right, I did find it a strangely strangely comforting novel as well as a frightening one and you do end your review by saying you wondered whether it actually was quite a hopeful book in some ways I did and I, I'm 
just because of the ending and because this emphasis on a friendship, which I don't know if at the end the friendship is going to turn into anything more, or if it's just, there's a moment where Martin's very ill and then a friend comes to see him and he suddenly sees them anew. And to me, it was the most moving moment in the book where he's sort of there, you know, in his bed, hospital bed, blinking at this woman. And he suddenly sees her differently. And it was so, oh, it was so striking. It reminded me of the bit in The Winter's Tale where the, where the statue is suddenly comes to life. Oh, she's warm. Suddenly he was looking at his friend and saw her differently. And you thought, wow, there it is. There's the thing that was needed from the beginning, which is someone who understands and fellowship and, you know, warmth and friendship, maybe romance, I don't know, but certainly real fellowship and friendship and care. And that Martin saw that and had that and you know they have quite a droll rapport through the book anyway these two characters and that at the end I thought that's what the unfinished business is it's between these two maybe or maybe that's me being an old soppy I don't know (laughs) well you sort of have to wait for the next novel don't you and then you don't know if it's going to be 21 years so it's it's, it's tricky (laughs) I mean I'm hoping not as well because I I love this book it's we might wonder whether novels like this now too easily sort of get written off as kind of introspective and not much happens mm-hmm. and are they very much about the world but I'm very much hoping not as I as I think from your, your review you are too gosh yes yep yep it's terrific so this is a big this is a hard recommend from us Rock that's hard. not a phrase I've ever heard before <laughs> but yes <laughs> It's not a hard pass. It's the other. The it's other not one. a hard pass. That's exactly what I was going to say. That's what people say in the culture these days. It's not a hard pass. It's not a hard no. It's a hard yes. So, Gwendolyn, thank you so much for coming and enthusing with us about Michael Bracewell. And so, Unfinished Business Week, hard recommend. I will hard recommend My Phantoms and Gwendolyn's other novels too. Thank you ever so much. Thank you. My pleasure. all we have time for this week our thanks go to gabriel roberts and gwendolyn riley and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.